here it's very special uh, because um okay sorry there's a recording um it's very special because it is a collaboration between american studies ethnic studies and women gender and sexuality studies which is the new name of our department yay yay um so thank you everyone for coming um it is Friday at noon, so um, I know there may be other places you'd rather be, but obviously it is um, very irresistible uh, when we have uh, an amazing speaker whose book I had the um, absolute um, pleasure to read and, you know, kind of like inspired. I literally emailed Bernadette as soon as I read it. I was like, oh my God, like your book is so amazing. But anyway, um, so thank you everyone for coming and thank you, uh, Dr. Bernadette Gonzalez, um, for your willingness to share your brilliant and work with us today. Um, I will now introduce her um, formally and then uh, we will have about 20 to 25 minute uh, presentation uh, followed by my asking maybe one or two questions as we wait for the audience to uh, gather the, their thoughts and questions. Um, so Dr. Bernadette Gonzalez is Professor of American Studies and Director of the Honors Program at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Her areas of research include studies of tourism and militarism, transnational cultural studies, feminist theory, postcolonial studies, and cultural studies with a focus on Asia and the Pacific. She has a PhD in ethnic studies from the University of California, Berkeley, with a designated emphasis in women, gender, and sexuality. Yeah, yeah. She's the co-editor of Detours, a decolonial guide to Hawaii, and the author of Securing Paradise, Tourism and Militarism in Hawaii and the Philippines, um, which won the Association for Asian American Studies Book Award for the best book in cultural studies published in 2013. Her most recent book, um, Empire's Mistress, um, starring Isabel Rosario Cooper has just been released a few months ago. Um, and we are here today to be wowed by this um, brilliant and new book. Um, so as I mentioned, we will hear her presentation first. And um, as you as you gather your thoughts and you have questions, feel free to click the um, raise button on reaction. Just click the raise button. I mean, share, um, raise your hand button. That way we can see like who um, are in line to uh, to pose questions. So please, everyone, welcome me and join, uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Bernadette Gonzalez. So nice to see everyone's faces. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Thank you to the Department of Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies for taking the lead on organizing this event, especially to IU, who I'm just delighted to be in conversation with today. Um, I also want to thank Ethnic Studies and American Studies for co-sponsoring the event. And it's nice to see um, these kinds of collaborations happening within our departments. I want to thank the rest of you for showing up on a Friday and especially a COVID Friday, which are really special kinds of Fridays when we'd all rather just be napping or having a drink at this point. It's five o'clock somewhere, right? So um, my talk today is not really a formal talk. I'm going to begin with sort of a broad description of Empire's Mistress um, because the book that I thought I would write about this subject, about this person, and the book that it actually ended up being are not quite the same. So um, I want, I'm going to give a little bit of a gloss so that those of you who haven't read the book um, won't be at sea. 
So um, I'd imagined at the outset that this would be a straightforward biography or even a scholarly monograph that could, through this person's life, the life narrative of Isabel Rosario Cooper, reveal how empire manifests itself through the intimate relationships that it is built on, that it generates and relies on. Um, so there is still that in this final book. Um, this is a story first and, first and foremost about the life of a woman, a mixed race actor who trod the vaudeville stage and starred in the first modern Filipino films. Um, and that would have been plenty. Um, but Isabel Rosario Cooper, was entangled and wove herself into the fabric of US Philippine empire on many different levels, um, most infamously as the sometime mistress of General Douglas MacArthur, its most stalwart soldier. So it is this narrative that I begin the book with, the story that sticks about dead beautiful women that is a beloved trope of imperial desire and world making. So, uh, the, the the story, this, this sort of dearly held story has the workings of imperial romance and tragedy. The powerful white soldier um, who the beautiful native woman cannot help but love, the, their inevitably doomed romance and her death of unrequited love. So empire loves its romances and especially loves the romances where it gets to be the starring character and is beloved. Um, so this one really stuck to Isabel Rosario Cooper. So in researching her life, much of the work went into hacking past this beloved plotline and working through why it was so cherished. Um, MacArthur loomed large and warped many of the ways she was narrated as a side figure in his biographies. And there are many biographies of Douglas MacArthur. What I learned and what is narrated in the book then tracks the backstory of Isabel's parents. Isaac Cooper, a white soldier from Wisconsin who shipped out to the Philippines when the Spanish-American War broke out in 1898 and ended up staying for the Philippine-American War and its aftermath of U.S. occupation. Josephine Protasia Rubin, one of three orphan sisters of a Laguna family in Luzon, who married quite young, the discharged soldier who entered into Manila's firefighting corps. So I follow their marriage in the way that Josephine Cooper's own life was a blueprint for the imperial intimacies that her daughter would soon take on, working as they both did with very limited materials that Empire gave them. I wanted to share, if I can, um, some images, because I think images are always fun. Oh, oops, I don't know if I did that properly. I don't think I actually shared the screen that I am looking at, so here we go. Can everybody see this? Okay, all right, so this is her. So the book also um, explores the rise of Isabel Cooper as the stage persona dimples on Manila's vaudeville stages, entertaining young soldiers on leave and um, also kind of goes into the workings of the Manila demi-monde. Isabel Cooper came to personify the young modern beauty, the mixed race beauty, um, that and her American repertoire setting her apart from the chorus line and landing her a film role that would put her uh, firmly in the history books. So she's also infamously known as um, being one half of the first Filipino on-screen kiss. Some people say it's the first Asian on-screen kiss. I'm not quite sure about that. 
Um, but this resulted in a great deal of scandal and infamy for her, which was also something that she leveraged for her own uh, career. Uh, I also then follow her relationship with MacArthur because that is sort of the thing that everybody is interested in, um, which I flip on its head to ask who wielded the power. This particular part of her life from the age of 20 to about 25 sees Isabel Cooper moving from Washington DC uh, to Washington DC to be with her lover who had been appointed the chief of staff to President Hoover, um, set up in a, an apartment near his offices and eventually parting with a great deal of rancor. We come to see the story through a moment where Isabel Cooper uses the love letters that Douglas MacArthur wrote her as leverage um, on the part of a muckraking journalist that uh, Drew Pearson, who um, MacArthur was suing for libel. So basically what happens is that Drew Pearson finds out this story about uh, Isabel Cooper and gets her to share the letters in order to pressure MacArthur to drop the suit. So out of that moment, she gets a settlement and an ally who would owe her substantial favors that would shape the rest of her, her life in Hollywood. So after that, I follow her um, life uh, through her brief marriage to a lawyer she meets in Washington, DC. Um, then her life as a freelance actor in Hollywood after her divorce and um, just right around when World War II breaks out. So um, I'm gonna share some slides here of some of the, the film roles that she, was, she managed to land um, as, a, as a woman of color um, in the sort of war, post-war, Hollywood um, uh, industry. So the role she's able to get on film, of course, tell a story about continued fantasies that Americans held dear about its role in the war, as well as about women of color in general and colonialism, and how Isabel Cooper navigated that morass, both on screen and her, in her day job as a hula dancer in a nightclub in Hollywood. So during this time, she marries and divorces again. These are sort of little very um, side notes in her life. Um, but as you can see, that's her on the far left of your screen. The kinds of roles she was able to get weren't so far off from the kinds of roles she had in real life and on stage as well. So um, this is her in um, uh, My Dream is Yours with Doris Day. And um, she also starred as, uh, I'll go back to that one, uh, uh, geisha, nurse, um, servants, Chinese secretaries, and, Char and Charlie Chan films. Um, so I finally end with her death by suicide, which I also start the book with, um, of an overdose of barbiturates around the age of 50, and how her story is taken up by both MacArthur biographers and historians and Asian American artists and playwrights. So this is an example of staging where she, on the far right, is Isabel Cooper, um, uh, uh, an actor playing Isabel Cooper, um, becomes a character in somebody else's play about Asian American women um, and actors and mistresses um, and sort of basically that kind of fantasy. Um, a lot, there are a lot of blank spaces in the archive and this dictated how her story could be told especially at the end. Um, the last half of her life had actually very little to do with MacArthur personally, but everything to do with navigating what it meant to live in the belly of the imperial beast um, in which MacArthur was actually a, a major player still. Um, basically, she has two husbands and decades in Hollywood, and somehow 
her life story still gets tethered to MacArthur insistently. Um, and her suicide, of course, um, has a lot of room for interpretation, but unrequited love somehow becomes the overall motivation for how it is interpreted. So that's one story of the book and the main one. The others have to do with the process, the archive and the form of the book, which inform each other. So how does one write a story when materials are ephemeral or scarce or when the subject lies on official documents? What does it say about the archives that we lean on for our own research? Um, how does one write a story when there already exists a story about a subject that is so dearly held, even as it is corrosive and outright wrong? Um, can we telling a story using the same form of revelatory biography undo this kind of narrative violence? So this book then is also about method and archive, grappling with the aporia between the impossibility of knowing the subaltern and the critical need to center her story, some story, especially in light of otherwise being narrated in such flattened, dehumanized ways. So the piecemeal research that I did on this book, starting from when I was in graduate school 20 years ago, um, um, just kind of pulling together what I could find about Isabel Cooper was also deeply part of the story. Um, and in the end, informed the kind of narrative form that I, could, that I, I chose for the book and the refusal of complete narrative authority that, I, that structures it. So it's precisely because the form of authoritative voice through biography and especially MacArthur biographies, um, and also in the archive through established tropes and archetypes, um, it's precisely because that kind of authority had narrated her into such a corner um, that I chose the form, that I felt the form I told her story in had to be part actually of the analytical method of the project. Um, so I made a lot of detours <laughs> um, with how the story could be written. Um, I experimented with um, fleshing out unknown details, writing an actual biogra biographical sort of prose, and that just didn't work. And it ended up being um, a book that had, uh, that brought in a lot of the, the forms of her own writing, the, the genres in which she was able to write herself and find herself um, during her lifetime um, that got pulled into the, the actual form of the book. So um, these um, were ways for me to at once flesh out the unknown details that lend themselves, I felt, to humanizing her, but also a way for me to theorize through form how these pieces of documentation that we so depend on um, are also themselves invitations for speculation and for reading against the grain, um, for imaginative flight rather than records of fact. Um, there's, of course, a deeply feminist genealogy of this, primarily from Black studies. Um, Saidiya Hartman's work is a big influence. Um, Lose Your Mother, which tracks the traces, the routes um, of, of Hartman, while um, also being tracked by them. Um, where you see the form and story of the method also becoming part of the narrative. Uh, her work in Wayward Lives, um, where the stories of female desire, black desire, and its radical everydayness take center stage. Um, you know, and I, I, I love the way that Hartman actually talks about how um, the archive, she had to write it in this way, in a speculative way, because the archive documents these women as a problem <laughs> and that speculation was her way to balance out the portrait that was um, 
that was recorded in the archive. So she wanted to treat the archive with less respect because violence underpins them. So they will tell violent stories. And I just really like the way that um, that comes through in Wayward Lives. But they leave room for stories of interiority and complexity, right? Um, a lot of the, the, the things I thought about when thinking about how to write this book, how to write the story, drew a lot from the genealogies and um, uh, narratives of Black women writers, such as Audre Lorde, King, J Jamaica Kincaid, Bessie Head, Toni Morrison, um, and uh, folks like Teresa Hakim Cha, whose book Dictate is about defying genre, right, and the way that the, that sort of um, defiance against genre is is a post-colonial move. So um, a lot of those those ways of writing, right, especially post-colonial women's writing, um, look at the archive, right, especially the colonial masculine archive as a disciplinary project that creates thick reams that tell us how to describe and weigh the lives of the colonized or shape the lens through which we view them. Um, and so they also educate us as researchers in how to approach the archives with caution and reverence. So I like the way that um, the, the way these women write turn that on its head. Um, so as a result, the result, um, Empire's Mistress is a book that plays with fictions, with gossip that was real in, in the sense that it was it existed, but also false in the sense that it wasn't true, um, of gossip that was possibly false, but, but also more real. It curates opinions that are meant to speak as facts from Filipinos and Americans who deem themselves authorities on the Filipina. It generates speculative archival materials um, as partner to the misleading kinds of creative self-fashioning that Isabel Cooper records in official state documents about her age, about her race. It leaves room for something else to be imagined apart from what has been narrated before. Um, and I should say that this was not something that um, when I sent the book out for publication and review um, that to two different presses that one press was very comfortable with. And in fact, they asked me to delete all the speculative parts of the book. So that was a not a non-starter. Um, I can talk a little bit about that later. Um, but finally, this, all, this book is also about the writer, not me in particular, though in this case, I do make an appearance in the book, but about authorship and authority that we borrow or take and the transformations that we ourselves undergo um, if these kinds of endeavors um, are to have any kind of meaning. So someone described the book to me as having the feel of a mystery or a whodunit. Um, and I, I actually really love that um, because I think that that's sometimes the role we take as researchers and writers is whodunit, what's the story of power here and what, what shape does it take? Um, and who gets to tell that story? So my attempt to tell her story differently about this woman who, on top of having lived such a full life, um, full of upside, ups and downs, of success, despair, failed relationships, constant work. Um, I hope that this attempt is um, might be a way to recognize the complexity of personhood that is not granted to Asian American women. And I'll end with actually a couple of archival, hmm, if this will let me of archival pieces that are in the book. So I took this letter from one of the archives. And this is a letter that was written to the lawyer of um, by Drew Pearson, the, the muckraking journalist that she helped out, that he wrote to his lawyer. And I highlighted um, 
this little bit in the letter that was referring to her as the flower of Cathay um, and how she could have gotten a lot more. Um, any Broadway flopper would have gone at him for about $500,000, right? So she's flattened in this moment. Um, and this is the kind of archival material that exists about her that you have to kind of read around um, and figure out, like, how do you tell a story when this is the material that exists? Um, and I just also wanted to include this because this is a little bit, you can't really read it, but it starts my own darling baby girl. It is one of the letters that MacArthur writes to her. And so how do you write a book when these are the materials that exist? Um, and it really shows where the archive aligns with a flattening out of Isabel Cooper and women like her. Um, but I also um, hope that the way that it is written and the way that it can be read shows that the archive, if we bring the right tools, can also be replete if we know how to listen and look um, of, of the kind of untold stories that cannot be quite constrained by their violence. So I'll stop there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh my gosh, when I thought I can't be wow anymore, and there you are. I was like writing a lot of the things that, um, and I love the way that you frame the framing of the book. And so, so thank you for that. Um, as mentioned before, I will begin with a question. Uh, and in the meantime, I invite um, all of you to click the raise button so that we can have some people lining up. So thank you, thank you so much. Um, so the first question that I have here, um, obviously I just have to ask about the experimental form uh, that you have, which is so fascinating, so creative and so inspiring. Um, and for some of you who have not read the book, uh, some of these uh, genres include, you know, these imagined letters, right? The silent film script and recipe, right? And yet this is still an academic book published by one of the most prestigious, you know, university press out there, right? Duke University Press. So I was just like, when I was reading, I literally was like, wow, like, wow, wow right? Um, I'm sorry, I get too excited. And this is like my nerdy side getting out, like, you know, anyway, so, um, but I was wondering too, uh, because in some ways, I mean, you're talking about just now how the, um, how these kinds of archives were, um, educate the researchers and how to handle, um, these materials, right? And so, so in some ways, I want to ask you how your book teaches, right, or invites the readers to learn new ways of readings. Um, so how do we imagine to do that, right? Uh, because um, there may be readers who may find the book frustrating because it does not fit um, in the convention of academic book or a biography, for example, right? They expect a certain ways of um, narrating and therefore reading. So how would you help the readers um, navigate your book? Um, and related to that, um, again, could you please take us to that very process of how you decide to do what you did, including the recipe, which I was like, oh my God, I need to write something like this. It's just, you know, so inspiring um, and liberating um, because in some ways it, it's sort of like, like you give permission for other researchers or writers or academic authors to do um, something like that. Um, so I guess, uh, please take us back to that process of, you know, how you decide um, to do what you did 
uh, especially in terms of that different uh, and creative genres um, that you have. So thank you again for um, that amazing presentation and the book. Thank you. Thank you, Ayu, for that great question. So um, there were a few things that went into the decision to write the book the way it was written. And part of it was to, to frustrate the reader, right? To not offer this narrative of a woman up so easily the way it had been um, so easily offered up by other people, primarily men, right? About um, Isabel Cooper. And I wanted to kind of push back against that and to also invite the reader um, into the into the um, the archive itself and to the uh, to the process of how the archive both invites and resists these interpretations, right? Um, and so that's why I actually include some archival material that I found in the book, and I had to like think about which one which things to include and which things not to. And then I thought about you know as um, as the process of research really took quite a long time because it was piecemeal over basically two decades. Um, later on, as I as I started delving into some of the material I found um, about her and kind of solidified what what was fact and what wasn't fact, at least basically about her, you know, her basic biography. Um, I realized that I was leaning a lot on these kinds of material. And I was also learning that she lied quite a bit, right, in them because the, the facts just didn't line up. And so I realized, oh, she's lying about her age because she's an aging woman in Hollywood. She's lying about her race sometimes because it's harder um, in some moments to get a job as a woman of color versus somebody who can sort of pass in different ways, right? So um, it became really clear that um, this was a very creative person who um, also manipulated the materials at hand. Um, and I then thought about the ways in which, um, you know, things like letters are supposed to um, give us insight into the interiority of a person, but they're also kind of performance. And so I started to play with all the different ways in which I, all the different genres and different ways in which uh, Isabel Cooper was written into history, right? Um, there's so little on her, so, but yet so much is made out of so little that I, I started to think, well, why can't we also as researchers speculate based on what we can find, but also um, think otherwise outside of the kinds of um, constraints that we put on ourselves as um, um, for, for telling the story. Um, there's a lot of rumor about her, for instance, right? And so how do you capture, how do you cite rumor? <laughs> That's one of the things I thought about, like how do you cite these things? And um, a lot of them exist as actual sort of printed sort of uh, Inquirer magazine type of publications. But then also, you know, there's a lot of rumors that just sort of are sly and are insinuated into even the way historians write about her, right? And so how do you kind of capture that and, 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 um, create a whole body of, of truths and lies that swirl about this person, but also the way that this person also encourages the, that set of truth and, truths and lies about her, because it's part of her job as an actor to remain relevant and talked about, right? And so I started to sort of, rather than going, oh my God, this is so frustrating, I started to enjoy the ways in which she as a creative person also manipulated these kinds of things. And I felt like that gave me permission, not necessarily to make stuff up about her, but to actually think, what if, right? What if she actually wrote this letter? <laughs> because we don't see any letters from her to MacArthur. We see a, see a whole bunch of really maudlin 
terribly written love letters <laughs> from him to her, uh, including the breakup letter. And, uh, you know, you start to kind of uh, imagine what the replies might have been, because, of course, he destroyed them all, probably, if there were any at all. Um, and so I think that the gaps that exist um, in the archive also kind of give you room to imagine otherwise and to speculate. And it, the way that I felt like I was able to do that without being unethical um, is because I stay, stay up front, right? <laughs> these are fictions, just like the fictions about her that already exist. But these are possible other kinds of pathways, especially around her suicide, right? Which is narrated as I am a despairing in love person. I kill myself because of that guy from 25 years ago. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's highly unlikely. <laughs> But that's the story that, that sticks. And so, um, you know, trying to come up with other alternatives that are actually, in my mind, more likely um, was was something that was was fun. And because I'm not a historian, I felt like I could kind of do that. <laughs> so all the historians in here can jump in and like, yeah. <laughs> yes, we would love to. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Hello, it's nice to meet you. Um, I do want to first say that reading this was a pleasure. I get excited when I get to read anything that's written differently. And when I read, I always have like a very visual movie playing in my head of what I'm reading. So this was like reading something twofold where I was seeing Isabel Cooper story playing out in my head, but you also brought us along. It, I felt like I was with you in the archives. So it was like this all at once twofold story I was reading and it was, it was really amazing. So I just wanted to say that first. And then for my question, when I got to the section where you started going into detail about each of the movies that Isabel Cooper played in and sort of bringing her to the forefront where she was meant to be in the background, I started thinking about, um, a class I had with Dr. Saraswati, where um, she apologized to the class in a sort of sorry, not sorry kind of a way. <laughs> because about halfway through the class, we were all like, every time I watch TV now, in everything I do in my everyday life, in everything I read, I'm seeing all these things that I was always trained not to see, that we're trained to sort of take for granted. And you start to see a lot more negative. It's that whole feminist killjoy thing. So when I started reading that section, it's amazing, but also, you know, sorry, not sorry. Um, but so when I started reading that section, I started to wonder, um, I'm sure you read differently, of course, because, you know, when we're taught to read between the lines and read the negative spaces, particularly in academia, we start to read that way. But I'm wondering if in your everyday life, when you watch movies, if you read for pleasure, are you seeing those characters in the background and going, what is their story? Why are they in the background? How am I thinking about this differently? So I just, I want to know if it's leaking into your everyday life and if you watch movies differently or read for pleasure differently. I, it, it depends, right? Um, when I am watching a K-drama where, and I just need to watch it to, to cleanse the palate, I do try to bracket my critical reading. It leaks in just because that's the way, that's the framework you're built, you're bringing into to the experience. Um, but I find myself, you know, especially if I'm watching it with somebody and it's a sort of social event, um, find myself having conversations about the side actors. Oh, they're definitely queer. They can't 
say that they're queer, but they are, right? Because this is Korea. Um, and so those kinds of things just sort of, I think, accompany, um, accompany the, 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 the mode of reading or the mode of uh, viewing that I think we bring to uh, the table. And I don't think that it's necessarily mutually exclusive of pleasure in, in itself either. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Betsy. I just wanted to say, Bernadette, that, that that was a fascinating presentation. And as, as a historian who also struggles with the archives in different ways, I thought that what you said was so powerful and suggestive. Because really what you're doing is you're drawing our attention to the unreliability of the archive in the way that it has traditionally been represented. And also to the fact that even the most private of documents have these performative qualities to them, right? Um, that and, and also to the fact that even first person testimony doesn't make it true in any particular sense. So really you're problematizing the very notion of certain forms of historical truth. So I just wanted to get quickly to the to I wanted to ask you to talk more about um, about how she represented herself to the public, because I think that's one of the key things that you're transmitting to us here, that regardless of how her story was told by all of these different generations and in all of these different milieu, she too was crafting her image for the public. So how did she want herself to be represented and remembered? Could you give us some more examples? Yeah, absolutely. So there were definitely um, a few moments where you really see her um, able to, at least even in mediated form, sort of tell her story. Um, she's uh, got some interviews that are tied to a role that she plays um, actually as, uh, as a World War II role that um, became the a sort of moment of panic for her because she was really trying to pass for someone half her age. And somehow it came up that she had known MacArthur and their age difference is massive to begin with. <laughs> and so this, this, you know, sort of precipitated a whole crisis on her part because she was doing math on the, on, on the sly while having a conversation with this director who said, oh, maybe we can leverage your, you know, your relationship with MacArthur to help with publicity for this movie. And she's going, well, God, you know, it's not, you know, she's, so she basically lies and um, uh, frames that as a sort of innocent um, kind of, um, patronage, right, of, on, on, on his part of her as a young student who wanted to come to the U.S. to learn. And so she tells this whole very um, innocent, scrub clean story of herself. Um, the other kinds of stories that she tells about herself are when she um, gets a divorce, right, from her first husband. And she, it, it's actually in a, in a, in the, I think, uh, not the LA Times, but it's in the paper, right? So the story of this young I think they were trying to, um, whoever was working with her at that point was trying to position her as a sort of up and coming possible actor, right? Um, and so they were telling the story of her being, um, leaving her lawyer husband and um, being an abused wife, right? Uh, and that she was now on her own and newly single and acting. And she was also not Filipina in that story she was all of a sudden Japanese because that was the role that she was kind of going for, right? So there are ways in which either she or her lawyer or with her permission or not is able to sort of narrate herself into these public kinds of um, 
ways uh, that that have to do <laughs> with what can I get out of this? What can I get out of this narration in this particular moment? So I think that she is um, definitely not the victim, right? And she, she works these kinds of narratives and um, narrative modes to her own advantage. Um, there's another place where she, um, with a second husband, um, there's a court case, uh, there's a hearing because she is accusing him of, of again, abuse. And she shows, you know, in the paper, it's narrated that she shows the judge her legs and the bruises on her legs, right? To, and so it's, it becomes a scene, right? Um, there is one moment that she writes um, her story. She writes a story about coming to Hollywood as a young Filipina starlet, right after she sort of makes it big in the Philippines. And she's not able to get a role in that very early trip. So instead, she writes this whole narrative about her trip to Hollywood. And she writes herself into a scene, which is a casting couch scene, right? So she sort of writes herself into these really interesting modes of, of womanhood, right? The tropes that make sense to people, but she's also really leveraging them for her own career at the same time. So it's really, a, she's a really interesting person in that regard. Thank you. Um, Lani? Hi, thank you. Um, forgive me, I have not um, had the opportunity to read it yet. So my question may be addressed in the book, but I'm curious about if she had any descendants and if the question of that or family members who may have interests in the story or the crafting of the story, uh, to what extent did you have to consider that or work through that in doing this research? That's a, that's a great question. She didn't, as far as I can tell, have any children, right? Um, as far as the archives can yield. Right? There's no children from um, her first marriage or her second marriage or from any other relationships that she has um, in in between and before and after. Um, she has half siblings um, because her mother had a, uh, a bunch of children with the first husband, um, Isaac Cooper, and then with subsequent American men. But the, the um, the kinds of relationships that she had with those um, half siblings was very little tracked, and um, the the almost closest relationship we see that is familial to her is her cousin's husband, who is this white expatriate, who decides he's going to write about her and share a lot of family stories and rumor and history, and he actually gets to be published because of the stories that he tells about her and these sort of like um they're really greasy kind of stories right like oh she lost her virginity to this to this man as a 14 year old in manila and he's you know publishing these in american kinds of um magazines so um isabel cooper herself never really had any uh as far as we know didn't have any any close family that tracked her through when she died in 1960 it was her first husband who paid for the grape and who showed up and and shows up as the as the nearest kin on the in the on the death certificate so we can kind of surmise from that the the sort of separation that she had from her family right thank you also mary has a question in the chat if it hasn't been yes so Ayu, do you want me to take whose question do you want me to take first 
Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I can read Mireille's question. How did okay. the story, journey, and fantasy of Cooper intersect with those of two other women who played conspicuous roles in MacArthur's life, his mother and his wife, um, in MacArthur's quest, a quest for manhood and empire, which was never quite 100% successful. His mother and wife were exceedingly subordinate and yet domineering in some ways. Was there any interesting moment of triangulation of these um, three in the archives? Um, there wasn't really. They're sort of tangential to each other. She's actually in between MacArthur wives. He has two, right? So the first wife was this um, socialite who is a divorcee herself. Um, so she was um, a sort of recalcitrant wife to MacArthur already. In some ways, um, he he was emasculated by her, right? She was um, a modern woman who had affairs, who had children by her first husband. They got a divorce um, and then he came to the Philippines and that's when he met um, Isabel Cooper. And then after a five-year relationship um, where he brings Isabel Cooper to DC, he's living with his mother during that time, by the way. <laughs> so he lives with his mother, but Isabel Cooper is set up in a little love nest near his office. So he is a mama's boy and does not, you know, um, does not want to uh, really openly confess to mom, um, who is very overbearing um, that he is having an affair. I'm, I'm sure she knew it was an open secret in, in DC. And then the second wife he met while returning to the Philippines after um, just before World War II, after they broke up. And she was also another wealthy socialite type, but, you know, a more modest one. And they were the ones who had uh, kids, and etc. Um, so Isabel Cooper never really intersected with anybody, except for maybe the mom, right, like in the same space as DC. Um, and also, um, Pinky MacArthur, which was her name, um, was also married to Arthur MacArthur, who was the general um, that oversaw the Philippine-American War and the occupation in the Philippines. So in some ways, they overlapped in the Philippines in the same spaces, but they didn't really interact because they were from different social classes. But a lot, there's, there's actually a, a historian who takes a very sort of psychoanalytic approach to the, the MacArthur story and basically says that, you know, the reason he is with um, Isabel Cooper, and you can you can take from this what you will, is because the first wife and the mother were sort of emasculating women for him. And so he needed to have this sort of docile, um, you know, biddable, young, beautiful trophy. And so, although I, you know, don't actually think that she was any of those things, although she played some sometimes. <laughs> so uh, Laura? has a question than Jordan. Hi, um, I apologize, I'm gonna leave my camera off because I'm having a heck of a time with my internet connection today. Um, and I also, on that same note, I apologize that this has already been addressed as I've kind of been in and out with being able to hear what's going on. But what I have heard has been such a pleasure to listen to you speak about your work. Um, but I wanted to ask, when you were writing some of the more inventive portions of the book, how did you handle having to portray some of that racism that Cooper faced as a woman of color in Hollywood, juxtaposed with your own experience with the woman of color? I, I think I lost the last chunk of that. How did I, something about the 
writing about her in Hollywood. It got Sorry. Little, my audio got a little funky. I'm sure it's on my end. I've been having trouble all day. Um, I was just asking how you handled writing about her experiences dealing with racism in Hollywood as a woman of color, juxtaposed with your own experiences as a woman of color. Well, my experience as a woman of color is very different from hers in some regard, right? Because we're from we're looking at um, Hollywood in the 19, 1940s and 1950s, right? So there's particular sort of um, Hollywood codes around interracial kissing, around the kinds of roles that um, women of color could have. Um, there were lots of roles for women of color, but they all went to white women in in yellow face, black face, red face, right? Um, so that was one of the things that I was, um, you know, I'm not a film scholar, I'm not a film historian, but when I watched all of her films, that was something that became really apparent. Um, she had very few speaking roles. Um, most of her roles were, except for the Charlie Chan roles, right? Uh, the Charlie Chan movies where she had substantial um, speaking lines, but even those just maybe added up to a total of maybe even a minute would be would be a high estimate, right? Um, more screen time as silent, but the actual audio was was um, very limited. Um, what I started to just notice was um, the ways in which these these roles really flattened out um, Asian women in particular. She mostly had Asian roles. She also played a Native American woman. She played a Caribbean slave. She played, you know, there's sort of like a litany of 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 types that um, that could be played. And the more substantial roles came because of World War Two, which, of course, then was shaped by the very um, conditions of colonialism and, and warfare right, that were taking place in, in the Philippines. And so in some ways those were haunted always by her own personal and and sort of uh, uh, relational experience with MacArthur because MacArthur would always be referenced in these films too, right? Um, and so, yeah, so it, it, I, I wouldn't say necessarily that I, I would make connections between my, my own experience and hers because I'm not an actor in Hollywood, but, um, it is interesting to see not necessarily how far we've come because now we're seeing a lot of folks talking about representation and you know um all the all the asian movies asian american movies that are now coming out right um but it is really interesting to see how how flexible those things are and how interchangeable she was as an actor with all the other kinds of roles that existed um for women like her and um you know I wouldn't necessarily say it's this like teleological kind of development, right? Where, oh, now we must be, we must be better because now we're seeing complex characters and blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I, I'm always a little skeptical of that, but yeah. So, so what was interesting to me was that, you know, she would play these roles on screen and then also in her own actual day job, which she probably got more money for, right? Um, as a regular kind of gig she was a hula dancer. She played a hula dancer right? <laughs> um, in these sort of um, clubs of the, the type that existed, right? Um, that were about sort of exotic, um, the, the exotic scene, which was very common um, during that time. And so she herself um, 
um, played, you know, was was in was in brown face in some ways, right? Um, and then she her last her last role was um, doing some kind of um, some kind of uh, belly dance, um, which is not something that is a Filipino tradition at all, right? a Filipino dance genre. And so it's interesting to see how she sort of slid in and out of these different roles, very limited kinds of roles, but really from the same palette, right, um, that Hollywood had. Jordan? Yes. Um, so I didn't get the chance yet to read your book, but I am very excited to read it. I had two questions, though. Um, why did you choose to write about Isabel Cooper? And then also, how have your opinions or views of her changed while researching and writing your book? That's, that's great. Um, I think I wrote about her because she was somebody that um, I'm a little bit contrary as a person. Um, she's exactly the kind of person that like an ethnic studies <laughs> um, project wouldn't necessarily be happy about, right? Because we want to write about our heroes. We want to write about the folks who did the work. We want to write about, um, you know, and she is not identifiable easily as such. And um, I just kind of wanted to write about bad girls too, right? Um, because I think that their stories are, um, easily buried under, um, well, just, I think sex and sexuality and shaming, right, operate a lot to obfuscate stories of women. And I thought that this was at work in, um, very much so in the way that Isabel Cooper's story was told. And so I, I did have a lot of guilt right, as a researcher at first thinking about well, why am I telling this person's story when I could tell instead a story of um, somebody who was labor organizer, which is totally like also awesome and amazing, um, or somebody who was a like Gabriela Silang, who is like a, a, a colonial, you know, warrior. Um, and so those are like more easily identifiable subjects, I think, of ethnic studies type research, which is my training, right? Um, so I'm not dissing ethnic studies. <laughs> it is at the core of what I do. But then I thought about like all the people who we don't write about, um, that we sometimes don't give ourselves permission to write about because they are bad subjects, right? Um, and they are those are typically the folks who are categorized uh, as um, the mistresses, the sluts, the, you know, all those kinds of dismissive flattening words that um, operate in particular ways. And so that's why I wanted to write about her. <laughs> Because I, you know, felt like that that wasn't the person I was supposed to write about. Um, and I thought also, like I, I tell my grad students this and my undergrads, you know, there's something when you're doing research or looking in the archives or doing whatever, um, if something sticks in your head, there's something there, right? And you can do a little bit more digging and figure out what is it that's bothering you about this. Um, and I think that the way Isabel Cooper, because she is this full human complex subject, exists in the archive and um, also um, exceeds the way she is told, right, in, in, these, in these biographies. 
that there was something there always, right? That 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 there was a story worth telling, and so um, yeah, so that that's why I I, I chose to write her. Um, my opinions of her, I think my opinions of her have gotten more complex. I've come to really appreciate the way she navigated and manipulated people around her um, because she had to, right? You really kind of understand um, the kinds of actions she took. Um, you get to um, appreciate the ways in which she um, existed and um, worked her way through her life um, in these really sometimes really awful conditions, right? Um, and I became a fan, right, of her work. I think she's actually a pretty decent actor who didn't get enough screen time. Um, and I'm really sad that a lot of her early work as, you know, her first films didn't survive um, the bombing of Manila. Um, and uh, they just don't, you know, as far as we know, they don't exist um, anymore because they're just ruined. But, um, you know, all we have of her are these sort of really, um, shallow, very uh, archetypal type of, you know, mini, mini appearances on film, but I became a fan. So that was my, my in terms of my opinions of her, um, I, I think I became also very fond of this woman, right? Not in the sense that I think we would like get along and go have coffee, <laughs> but I just became like appreciative of the kinds of things that she went through and how she, um, how she navigated the world around her. Thank you, Alice. Hello, um, I just wanted to start by saying that I absolutely loved the book. Um, the part about the mango cocktail recipe was also my favorite part. I thought that was just a really funny inclusion. I love that you stacked it right after the screenplay of when she met MacArthur. Like, I just thought it was, it just made it really, palatable and like really nice to read and it was exciting like it was really fun I really enjoyed it um so my question is I really also loved the part when you were talking about the first time that you saw her in one of her movies and how it felt like to you as though you were meeting someone that you'd heard so much about um so I'm wondering what it was then actually like for you when you met her first husband's son at Berkeley a few years ago and then when you actually went to her grave as well and like if that was a really moving experience to have that after you'd spent two decades researching this person and then to feel so close to them in that way but also get still removed I, I'm really curious oh thank you for that um you know my initial plans for a book launch it actually included um serving the cocktail <laughs> the tugless um, so one of these days we'll get together and actually do that um but yeah you know um I realized that um, Frank Kenimer, the son, junior, or uh, not really junior, um, existed. And um, I just sort of cold emailed him. He's a lawyer in San Francisco. And um, I realized, oh, I probably drove by his house all the time when I lived in Berkeley, <laughs> you know? And he was more than happy to chat with me because he had heard about, you know, this sort of side story. And when we, um, had a conversation in Berkeley, we sat down for lunch and he told me what he thought was the story, which was he thought that his dad who had served in the war met Isabel Cooper during World War II, right? And that it was, you know, they had married after. And I said, oh no, <laughs> they, you know, they had met actually while he was um, possibly a, a, 
students still at um, at Georgetown um, studying for his law degree and um, while she was with MacArthur right and so he was like oh yeah so that really explains why um, you know his dad really didn't like hearing about MacArthur talking about MacArthur so there were there were just these interesting ways because he never met her right he only encountered this sort of story after the fact after his father's own death which was after um which was after um, Isabel Cooper's own death. So, you know, there are layers of like mediation here, right? So we're hearing his story of this woman from all these, from like what his mother had told him, what his, what he could figure out from what his dad didn't tell him. And like his story of the pill that he found in his dad, the, you know, the bottle of pills that he found in his dad's desk. And so, um, so that was really wonderful. We've, we've sort of like kept in touch irregularly. Um, I sent him a copy of the book and I haven't heard from him since, but um, he was he was trying to find out more of the story from his dad's side because he was interested in his dad, um, dad's story. But um, there was another part of, oh, yeah, the grave. Um, yeah, so um, one of the first pieces of sort of documentary, like proper archival material I found about her was the the the, um, the death certificate. And um, I realized that there was like the address there, right, of um, where she was buried, I think is on there, um, or where she was, yeah, like, anyway, so I think I sort of connected the dots and ended up there. And, you know, I, I tell that story, like, it's, a, it's sort of like a, an anticlimactic story, because there's no beautiful gravestone to describe where she's hidden and in fact it kind of resists you um and it's sort of got getting hot and cranky and it's just grass right because there's nothing to mark her grave and i just thought that that was instead of being frustrated by that and i've actually heard from from classes who have read the book or parts of the book that wouldn't it be a nice thing to to actually pay for a gravestone and i thought i don't know i don't know that it would be right because there's, I think, something, something to the, the fact that it doesn't exist, right? It, I think it leaves room for narrative. Um, anyway, yeah. So I hope that answered your question. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Crystal. Thank you, Bernadette. Um, I'd love to ask you about your process. As a writer, you know, you decide to embark on this character and you decide to dive into her life and the journey. And as that goes, oftentimes you get distracted or little pieces of material kind of take you on different, smaller back roads where you didn't see yourself going to begin with. And so I'm wondering how, you know, you started off, maybe you had an idea of how you're going to, how linear you're going to do it or how anti-linear you're going to do it and how you wove those surprising new things that you had come to discover during your process and what you decided to use, you know, which distractions you decided to build off of um, while still holding on to that historical backdrop, which is so important. You know, how do you ground and navigate both fantasy and historical space and basically want to know what surprised you during your process ah what surprised i'm gonna write this <laughs> okay so what surprised me was the fact that i actually showed up at the coroner's office in la really late to writing the book <laughs> you know i'm like trying to track um a police report because suicides 
produce police reports, right? Um, that's just sort of how things work in, in LA. And so um, I was trying to track that police report of what happened, right, when her body was discovered. And I had called, so I'll start with that question. Um, I had called repeatedly over two years, right, um, that I decided to kind of try to find this material. I realized that it exists, like something like it must exist. Um, and uh, you know, it's no surprise that um, the county coroner's office folks are not particularly <laughs> forthcoming or helpful or whatever. Um, so I finally just show up in person because I had like something in, in LA and I like, you know, took an Uber <laughs> to this coroner's office and I'm just like, hi, can I see this? And um, in the end they said, oh, well, you know, I think we think it's, it's just lost, right? As things sometimes are in the archive. And I just thought, I really wanted that piece of documentation. I just really like that the story that would have told, right? And then I had to kind of let it go and say, well, what, what was I clinging to so hard? What was the thing that I thought I wanted, right? So a lot of that kind of back and forth um, desire for documentation, because again, like, you know, as, as somebody who's sort of doing work that is like a history and based on historical archives, who is not originally trained to, to, you know, to do this work, I was really like, it was piecing a lot of this stuff together over, over two decades worth of time and um, trying to figure out in the end when I had sort of assembled all I could at that point, right? Um, and this was maybe like five years ago when I started to, to sit down and write the story. And um, there was a draft probably two years before I had the, the, the draft that I would submit to the press where it was really linear. I tell the story, right, very, <laughs> and then I looked at it and I read it and I'm like, God, this is dead. This is just, this is, this is so static, right? It's basically reproducing the kinds of ways, the kinds of modalities, not necessarily the, the tropes that, um, you know, she had been, that had been used in telling her story, but the, the kind of language, the kind of narrative arcs, the kind of, um, it was very uh, explanatory. It was very, um, it was just flat. And so I had to kind of sit on it for a while and, and give myself, that, that's the nice thing about tenure <laughs> is that the, the pressure for, for producing something on a timeline kind of is alleviated. And so I had to sit on it for a little bit and experiment with, okay, how would I, how would I write this differently? And I started to think then at that point about the different genres that I had encountered. Um, and I thought, well, I think at some point I thought, what if I chap uh, I titled the chapters and thought about the chapters as um, sort of guided by the different roles that she played or the titles of the different movies. So I, I played with that. That didn't quite work. Um, and then, um, you know, over the when I had submitted part of the manuscript to um, Duke, um, one of the things that gave me permission, you you know, I you talked a little bit about how you felt the book gives you permission to write differently. Sometimes a reviewer can have that much power, right? Like one reviewer from one of the other presses was like, I don't like this kind of writing. It shouldn't be in here. It's not proper. It's not, you know, there was there was a way in which they um they felt that I was disrespecting the archive, I think. <laughs> You know, which is really interesting to me. I'm like, well, did they read the book? Because that's kind of like the whole point. Um, and then um, the, the one of the reviewers from Duke 
was somebody who like actually gave me permission because they were like, are you going to include a whole a screenplay at the end as an appendix? Because it feels like it, it should be it should be there. And I thought, huh. Right. And so that was one of the first moments where I thought about um, alternative alternative genres and how her story could, you know, especially in these moments where we don't have anything about her or where the stuff is so thin that you could actually lean on these genres to to create space um, for speculation. So, yeah. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, so I'm very mindful of the time. We wanna make sure that we end on time. So uh, we have our very last um, student or uh, Estrella to ask the, um, the question for today. No. No pressure. No, no pressure. pressure. Um, actually, Alice asked the one question I was thinking about asking about um, the cemetery and going there. So great minds think alike, Alice. Um, but I just wanted to say that I really did enjoy the book and I really appreciated the way you um, I don't want to discredit uh her choices in life or anything like that, because I'm not, I, who am I to have any kind of judgment, but I really appreciate how you, you made her just a human and didn't focus on her connections to MacArthur or the scandalous about her or just anything, anything that is so easy for society to look at a woman and have a negative opinion or judgment of a woman and how she's living her life, whichever means she has to put food on the table or, you know, have a life for herself. So I really did value the way you, you were true, but you also, I felt like you looked at her with compassion and humanity. So I just want to appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Really nice thing to say. Would you like to respond to that? Uh, I don't or, know. Even, um, even in that, um, you know, how do you actually humanize, right? A character who you encounter has been, you know, lying and 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 playing out her own, you know, agency. Um, um, I think one of the things that you talk in, a, in your book, I think somewhere, um, let me see, like if I have that, page 62, you talk about how, um, Isabel's um, value and worth were always measured with the instruments of racial and sexual desire, right? And so like um, in the cases where what you see everywhere, you know, in the, the different the multiple archives that you encounter kind of like put her in, in that position, like how do you then, um, you know, I think you mentioned kind of like, you know, retell it in a different way without being, without falling into that very same problem. Right um, of like the same narrative of of, of um, um, representing her in that way. Oh, it's always about. I mean, you are obviously right. Uh, talking about her racial and sexual um, desire expressions and agencies, right? And so, so how you know you know what I mean? Like, so how do you sort of like oscillate um, and and make sure that you don't you know trip into that the same archive mm -hmm. that she has been produced? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think sometimes, and I, gosh, I don't know if I want to go down this route. Um, okay, so Filipina, Filipinas, Filipino women, um, I think are, as Asian women, many Asian women are, 
sort of captured within a certain kind of flattening um, set of representational uh, frames, right? Um, and that's what enables folks to think about them as mistresses, as prostitutes, as, right? And so what the process of writing this um, made clear to me was how like those things were at work, right? And how there was such a much deeper story. Um, and I think that those guys, sorry, my, my, my dog is barking at the door. <laughs> She's like whining. Um, I think that even in our everyday lives as feminists, as, as sort of feminists of, of color, as feminists who think about um, imperial structures, militarization, right? There's still, like I remember traveling in Manila and seeing a very young Filipina woman at the airport with a very much older white man, right? And I know the kinds of things that entered my head about what her story must be, right? It just is part of like what comes into existence really easily because it's out there, right? It's what we digest and what we circulate about Asian women of this kind, right? Like that's why I use the phrase all the time about Isabel Cooper, women like her, right? And it, I repeat that again and again in the book because it's meant to do a certain kind of work because it does a certain kind of work in the world. And so um, I think that um, doing this kind of work where you you do kind of dig into a story like Isabel's, right? Which has exactly those kinds of, those characteristics allows you to kind of think about maybe the moments where in the present day you circulate through and you operate with those same kinds of things, right? In unthinking ways, right? Um, and so it was really humbling, right? To me as a, as a, as a feminist of color, as somebody who thought um, I approached, um, um, you know, the stories of women with with respect and capaciousness to realize that in some of these moments of encounter, right, in, in really um, um, ephemeral encounters, I had already framed women in the same ways that Isabel Cooper was being framed and probably I was being framed. Right. And so it, it becomes this really kind of, um, I think, sticky moment and, um, you know, uh, it, it makes you think about just how much staying power and framing power those narratives still continue to hold. Right, even when somebody who is trained to sit, to know otherwise, it's still part of like the the reflex that you have in your head. Um, and so I think what doing this um, project and Isabel Cooper made me think of was to 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 basically approach these kinds of things with a great deal more humility, right? Because I don't know, we don't know those stories, and that we need to know. And that's part of the work that we need to kind of um, do as feminists. What an awesome place to to end. Um, so thank you again one more time. A big, huge round Thanks of for having me for the presentation and the book and everyone for coming and staying until the end. Thank you again. We'll see you next month. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for coming.
Thank you. Thank you.